0: All right. Uh, once you've met someone, you can take a seat. Um, I know some of you love that time and you look forward to it, right? I know all of you love that time. Um, hey, we're in the Gospel of Mark and uh, we're making our way through the Gospel of Mark. So if you would, raise your hand. We would love to get you a Bible so you could follow along. But we're going to be in Mark chapter 3. We're flying through this book. It's April. We're already uh, coming to an end of Mark chapter 3, so it's great. Um, Hey, I actually want to share a couple things with you guys as you're turning to Mark 3 and just kind of update you. Uh, last week, I know you guys know this, some of you know this, some of you don't, but we had our first baptism as a church. And that was really, yeah, that was really special. We can praise Jesus for that. Um, honestly, it was super humbling. It's really, really neat. Um, we saw eight people get baptized um, at Deerfield Beach. And it was really, it really was a special time. Um, you know, we saw a couple people come to the Lord for the first time and we were just praying for... We're just praying, like, God, let there be one person who wants to be baptized in your name. So just seeing eight people uh, get baptized publicly declaring their love for Jesus was a really beautiful time. So that was uh, this last Sunday. Oh, yeah. Um, Honestly, it was just a really humbling, really sweet time. And um, just thank you for all those who helped me to happen or just came to support and love on everyone. It was a really, really beautiful time. Hey, we're in Mark chapter 3. Uh, In case you're new, just want to say, welcome, my name is Josiah, and we're so glad you're here. I'd love to just meet you after, before you head out, before you leave, and just say, what's up, welcome. Um, We're taking the year to go through the Gospel of Mark. We just want to focus on the life and ministry of Jesus, and, and that's kind of our hope as we walk through this book, just spend time looking at Jesus. Mark, just so you know, this was the first Gospel actually penned or written. This was probably written within 20 years of Jesus' death and resurrection. So this is the first gospel that was written down. It written by a guy named Mark or John Mark. Remember, Mark was actually called Peter's son in the faith. Peter calls in this in 1 Peter. He says, Mark, my son in the faith. So Mark seems to be discipled by Peter. A lot of Bible scholars do believe that this is more of Peter's gospel than is Mark's gospel. Um, and I like this gospel because it is, the, it is the ADD gospel. It's the gospel where Mark just jumps from one story to the next. He's all over the place. And if you're like me and you kind of need that, like this is taking too long, it's, it's great. I love how he speeds it up, even though we're taking a year to go through Mark. But it's great. Um, so he just jumps from story to story. He, he's really trying to show you who Jesus is. He's trying to say, this is who Jesus is, this is what he said, this is what he did, this is what others said about him, but you decide. You know, what I love about Mark, in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, he says, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he tells us from the very beginning who Jesus is, that he's the Son of God. But really, throughout the rest of the gospel of Mark, it's kind of like this discovery of who Jesus is for the characters in the story. So we as the reader know who Jesus is. We know that this is the gospel, the good news of Jesus, the Son of God. We, we know who Jesus is, but the people that Jesus is meeting, they don't know. And they're slowly beginning to discover, maybe this guy is just more than some prophet. Maybe this guy is just more than some teacher. And so last week, we, we looked at this idea where there's just multitudes of people. Like Jesus started to get very popular and well-known in his, wor- his famous uh, traveling to all these different countries and regions, and many people came to him. And last week, if you're with us, we talked about the crowd versus the community of Jesus. The crowd that followed Jesus from a distance versus the community of Jesus that just want to be with Jesus. You see, there's a difference. There's people who are infatuated with Jesus. Like, they're interested in him and by him, and they want something from Jesus. Listen, that's what we talked about. The crowd wants something from Jesus, while the community just wants Jesus. And there really is a difference. I know even in my own life, a lot of times I just want something from Jesus versus just wanting Jesus. Like, do you just want Him to be with Him, to know Him, to walk with Him? And that's the difference between the crowd versus the community. And if you remember, we saw Jesus at Mark chapter 3, verse like 17, 19, he chose the 12 disciples. So at this point, he finally says, hey, you're my disciples, you're my apostles, you're my, you're my gang, I'm going to send you guys out, I'm going to build my church upon like, this group of people here, and we talked about how they're basically misfits coming together, and we see that throughout the Gospels, and I, I love this, and, and here at this point, just so you know today, I'm bringing all this together because today, they now think Jesus is crazy, they think Jesus lost his mind, and a part of me thinks it's because of who Jesus chose, like Jesus chose 12 men you would never choose. Like, you should never choose these 12 people. And now his family, their scribes, they're thinking, man, this guy's crazy. He lost his mind. He's demon-possessed. And so what we're going to look at today and talk about today is this question of who is Jesus? So who is Jesus? What did others say about him? What did his family say about him? What did the scribes say about him? But what did Jesus say about himself? And really, the Bible kind of says, like, you make the decision. This is who he is. This is what he did. But now you decide. And so the title today is simply, Who is Jesus? And there's so much debate about this. There's so many speculations still today. There's so many weird ideas about who Jesus is. But this text, I really do believe in Jesus and in two parables. And really in the last parable, the last metaphor, he answers who he is. And I love how he describes himself. He says, like, I'm the stronger man. And so we're going to read about the idea of Jesus being a stronger man and look at Jesus' identity. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 3, verse 20. We're just going to read it all the way through. We'll pray and look at this more in depth. All right, Mark chapter 3. Verse 20, why don't you read with me? It says in verse 20, then the multitude, so Jesus just chose the, chose the 12 disciples. They went into a house, verse 19. Then the multitude came together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. That would just frustrate me right there. Like, it's so crowded, they're like, oh, I can't eat now. Like, I'd be kind of mad. Verse 21, but when his own people, and really that word is family, and I'll explain, his own family heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said he is out of his mind. And then the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of the demons, he casts out demons. So Jesus called them to himself and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. No one, here's a second metaphor, parable. no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. Assuredly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the sons of men. All sins will be forgiven, the sons of men. And whatever blasphemies they may utter, but... He who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because, they said, he has an unclean spirit. Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside, they, said, they sent to him, calling him, and a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And that's happened to me quite a bit, like, just saw your mom's here, she's coming to get you. Uh, verse 33, But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle at those who sat by him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. We're going to talk more about this. And I love that Jesus is going to share his identity now with those who follow him. So let's just pray and ask God to speak and move this morning. Father, we, we do thank you so much for this gospel. We thank you for the life of Jesus. God, we thank you for how he responded when those who falsely accused him. And God, we just ask that you'd speak, that you'd move. God, that whether there's people in this room who don't know you or just Christians for many years, Jesus, that you'd refresh our hearts of who you are, that you are the stronger man who bound up the strong man. God, that you've come to plunder, you've come to seek and to save that which is lost. And so God, move in this place, speak to us now in your wonderful name, Jesus. Amen all right so as we just read jesus is being accused falsely from a couple different groups of people and they're making claims against him and accusations against him and i don't know if you've ever experienced that i don't know if anyone's ever said something about you that was false or if anyone's ever said something about your reputation and now whenever people look at you your reputation's ruined or they kind of go maybe you aren't as trustworthy as i thought at this point in time this is kind of what's happening they're they're making false accusations against jesus and when that happens that really hurts and there's a side of us that want to like, defend it and like, fight against it. And I love how Jesus responds to this. But again, if you've gone through this, you know how painful this is. You know, when I was in high school, and I'm trying to think of a way to relate this, and this is a petty story, but when I was in high school, it was my sophomore year, I think, I was in biology class, and we had a pet rat in the class. Um, I don't know why we had a pet rat with a bunch of 16-year-old boys. It's a terrible idea. But it's actually the teacher's pet rat. Like, it's her personal rat. She wanted a rat. And it's her kid's rat. And one day we're in class, we're, I'm sitting there, you know, minding my own business, like a good 16-year-old rat, um, listening to my teacher, and I'm sitting in class, and my friends come, my friends, who I thought were my friends, come and take the rat, and they place it on my shoulder. And I had no idea what it was at first. I'm just sitting there, like, riding, and I feel something, and I look, and I just see this rat. And I think they knew my reaction, and they knew why, I had, you know, they just know me, so that's why they put the rat on me, because I sometimes tend to spaz out. So they put this rat on me, and I just f- jump and freak out, and the rat slid down my arm as I stood up. It slid down my arm, and I flung it. And you just see this rat flying across the classroom and it lands and it's like shaking and it's injured and the teacher runs over and she's like crying like, my rat! She's really upset and she puts the rat in this box and she's like, I'm going to deal with this after class and she's really crying and she's like, I can't believe you'd throw my rat. I'm like, I didn't throw your rat. And so she ended up taking the rat and this is very real. She takes the rat to a vet and the rat dies. The the vet cannot help the rat. And so the rat, I killed a rat in a sense. Um, Not fully, but you know, the rat dies. There's a $200 medical bill. I called the office, and it's like, hey, Josiah, you, you killed the teacher's rat. Uh, you got to pay 200 bucks for the vet bill. I'm like, no, no, no. I didn't kill the rat. Like, they placed the rat on me. I just moved, and it died. I don't know. You know, my am like, that, why is that on me? So eventually, they figured it out. The two friends who placed it on me, they had to split the vet bill uh, for the rat. That, I don't know why you take a rat to a vet, to be honest, but they, they took it to a vet, and they had, to, they had to pay the bill. Now, I remember I was walking to class like the next day, and her kids loved that rat. Like, they loved that rat. And I'm walking like, by her class, and they come leaving the classroom crying. They're like, there's the guy that killed the rat. I'm like, no, it wasn't me. I'm not the rat killer. And for like months, it was, I was known as the rat killer, right? And it's just, t- I don't know why, but it's just like, you know, whenever I walk through class, it's like, oh, the rat killer's here. I'm like, I didn't kill the rat, but I did. Um, But that was like my reputation, that was like a false, and it's not a perfect illustration, I know it's very petty, but that was kind of like now the claim against me, and this is who I am, I'm the rat killer, and that was just kind of, and here's the thing, we've all been a part of situations, probably much more major, much more serious than that where someone says something about you or they hurt your reputation. There's this thing that now it's kind of like you're walking around with. People are like, are we sure he's legit? Are we sure this is real? How do we know? And here's what's happening. I want want us to see this. Jesus is doing some incredible things. People have never seen this before. They've never heard the things Jesus taught before. They've never heard the power in his teaching before. And now there's people close to and not so close to him who are making claims against him. And now there's false accusations being made. And now they're saying he does it by the power of Satan himself. And Jesus has an opportunity to respond and defend himself, and I love what he does. He answers by speaking in parables. And we're going to talk more about parables next week. Like, this is the first parable we'll see in the Gospel of Mark, what we just read. These are the first parables, and Mark will spend some more time on parables, and I'll explain what a parable is. And, but he's, That's next week. But this is Jesus' answer to this. And, and here's what I want to see, because what today's about and the text is about, what it revolves around today, we're trying to answer the question of who is Jesus. They're going, he's mad, he's demon-possessed, he's a liar, he's not really, he's a liar, he's demon-possessed. There's all these false accusations against Jesus, and Jesus answered himself, this is who I am. And so here's what we're going to walk through today, because the identity of Jesus is the most important thing about our lives. How you and I define Jesus, I believe, is the most important question in life. What you say about God and what you say about Jesus and how you define him and what he came to do will transform and change every part of you, or it won't. And so we've got to look at who is Jesus, And so, here's kind of four thoughts about Jesus' identity. Uh, In verse 20 to 22, we're going to see Jesus' identity is accused. His identity is accused. Next, we're going to see Jesus' identity identity is made known. He makes his identity known through these metaphors or parables. We're going to see Jesus' identity is blasphemed, and then Jesus' identity is shared. He shares his identity. He shares who he is with other people, with us, to be part of his family. So, Today revolves around who is Jesus, what is his identity, what did others say about him. Let's look at the first one. Jesus' identity is accused. Read again in verse 20. Verse 20, it says, Then the multitude came together again, so that they could not eat so much as eat bread. But when his own people heard about this, they went out to lay hold of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, He has Beelzebub, and by the ruler of demons he casts them out. All right, first of all, there's two different groups coming to Jesus. They're in a house, they're eating a meal, his family comes to him, and then the story's interrupted by the scribes making another claim against him. Now, I, I want to explain this, because if you depend on the version of what you have— there's different versions obviously and verse 21 seems to be best defined as his family came to him i'm gonna throw up the esv for you guys so you can see it it says and when his family heard it they went out to seize him to take him by force for they were saying he's out of his mind this is a very unlikely group of people that would come to jesus his family is coming to him now i want to point this out just so you kind of see what's happening uh In Mark 20, Mark chapter 3, verse 20 through 35, this is called the sandwich technique. Mark oftentimes will tell a story, interrupt the story, and finish the story. That's why I call it like a sandwich. It begins with one story. His family goes to him. It's interrupted by the scribes coming to him, and Jesus focused on that, and then it goes back to his family again. It's so like you're telling a movie, or if you're telling a story, you're watching a movie, it begins with one scene, you're like, what is that? And it goes to something else, like, why did we leave that? I don't get why we left that. And they're like, oh, I make sense now, and they end with that. That's kind of what's happening here. It's a sandwich technique. This is how Mark teaches often or writes often. And so he's showing us his family, goes to the scribes, shows his family again. So it's kind of sandwich in the middle. So let's talk about for a second Jesus' family. They came to him, and they said he's mad. His family said he's mad. His brothers, his, sister, his mom. they said he's mad. So he's crazy. This is the first claim against Jesus. He's mad, he's crazy, he's lost his mind. Now, I do believe in many ways his family probably had good intentions like we love Jesus, we don't know what's going on, let's just pull him aside and fear what's going on. But they they did it with really bad, I, I think not bad motives, but they had the wrong understanding of who Jesus was at this point in time. They didn't know who he was. Just so you guys do know, actually, just some family history. Jesus did have brothers. He did have sisters. It's Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Um, here's the verse. It says, Mark 6, verse 3, Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? So they were offended at him. We're going to read that story later. But he had brothers. There's four names. He had sisters. His mom, that's mentioned here. So we know at least Jesus had four brothers and two sisters. at least two sisters. And they all came to Jesus. Now we know at this point in time, his family was not believers, just so you do know that. It's in John chapter 7, verse 5, it says, For even his brothers did not believe in him. So we know Jesus' brothers did not believe in Jesus. And that would be a weird family dynamic, right? Like if your brother is the son of God, that's gonna be confusing. It's gonna be frustrating. Your mom's gonna be like, Why aren't you like your older brother? Like, because he's God. Like that's just gonna be really frustrating. It's really, really hard. I have an older brother and an older sister. Luckily, I did not have to like, reach that kind of level by any means. It's, it's tough. But here's the fi- family dynamic that's happened. They didn't believe in Jesus, but what changed? Because here's what we do know. We know that Jesus' brother James wrote the book of James. The book of James is not written by Peter, James, and John. It's not written by that James. That James was dead. The book of James was written by the brother of Jesus. We know that Jesus' other brother, Judas, or Jude, wrote the book of Jude. So here's some of his brothers who didn't believe in him, but now they write books of the, light, books of the Bible later. What What happened? What I believe would happen is they saw the resurrected Jesus. Everything, we just had Easter, but they saw Jesus is risen, and they go, okay, everything's changed. <laughs> this is God. This is God. He told us this would happen. This is God in the flesh. Something changed, something happened. But at this point in time, they didn't know this about Jesus. They didn't believe in Jesus. They thought he lost his mind. Jesus is walking around Galilee. He left Nazareth. He's going around Galilee. He's making some great claims. I have the power to forgive sins. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. They're going, oh, what's going on with Jesus? So their concern, it says they came to seize him or take him by force. And here's what's happening. Jesus wasn't doing what they thought he should do, and they try to control Jesus. And let me ask you, because when do we try to do this? Do you try to do this? Are there times in your life and my life when Jesus isn't doing what we think he should do, and so we try to take him by force? We try to go, no, 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 Jesus, you don't fully get the, the scoop of things. Like, Jesus, step into my office. Let me explain how the world works. Like, I think sometimes we try to manage Jesus, or we try to control him. We try to shut him up. Well, Jesus didn't really say that. Jesus didn't really mean that. He obviously tried to mean something different, and we try to speak for it. Jesus. This is kind of what's happening. His family is, in a sense, trying to speak for him. Listen, when we attempt to control God, we cannot be changed by him. And this is what I want you and I to see. When you and I ch- attempt to control God, to say what he can and cannot say, to say what he can and cannot do, when we try to control God, we cannot be changed by him. See, and, and this is a danger, I think, for all of us. Because all of us want to try to control God, make Jesus who we think he should be, rather than letting just Jesus speak for himself. And rather than just following Jesus at his, his word. And so his family comes to him and says they want to seize him, literally take him by force. They come to, and then the story's interrupted, like I said, with now the scribes. The scribes are like, no, 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 he's not just mad. He's filled with a demon. He's demon-possessed. Like they try to say, it's no, it's worse than you think it is. So here's the next thought. in case we're, The scribes said he has a demon, so therefore he's lying. He's not who he says he is. He's demon-possessed. He's a liar. And they're trying to, everyone's trying to make sense of Jesus. And I want us to hear that. Because still today, obviously in 2018, everyone tries to make sense of Jesus. Who is he? Is he mad? Is he, is he Is he just a good teacher? Is he a moral kind of a guy? Should we quote him in a you know, psych class? Like what who is Jesus? What do we do with him? What, how do we make sense of him? And still, this is kind of the world we live at. And, and this text, I think, so clearly puts it. This is called, and I know C.S. Lewis coined this, but this is called the Great Trilemma. But this text itself basically presents Jesus in three options. He's mad, he's crazy, he's out of his mind, or he's demon possessed and he's a liar. Or Jesus would say, I'm the stronger man. I'm the man who came to plunder Satan and his kingdom. And Jesus says there's another option. And really this kind of goes back to that trilemma. You think of like, you know, I don't know, trilemma for you ladies. You're like, I got three outfits to wear today. What do I choose? Like you have a trilemma. I don't know. You're like, oh, there's so many options. There's like three options. I mean, really this is what they're saying. They're saying he's mad, he's crazy, or you know he's a liar and he's demon possessed. Or Jesus is like, no, I'm really Lord. You know, I've, I've shared this quote before. It is just worth noting. It is worth thinking through because I think here's something we do. We in today's generation try to say, no, 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 he's neither of those things. He's just a legend and he's just a moral teacher. And I really do believe the Bible does not give us that option. I mean, you can't look at Jesus saying, I and the Father are one. You know, if you believe me, you'll never perish but I have everlasting life. You, you cannot take the claims of Jesus and just say, you know, he's some sort of moral authority. You can't do that. And let me say this. They didn't do that. They took the claims of Jesus very serious to the point where they picked up stones at various times to stone him. And it eventually led to his death and crucifixion. They just say, no, he's a good teacher on peace and love. Let's just, you know, we'll put up with the other stuff. Like, that doesn't happen. Just so you guys know, like, remember Jim Jones, right? In the, like, night in the 70s? Jim Jones is, like, a cult leader. I think it's called the People's Temple in San Francisco. And he had this crazy big following, don't drink the Kool-Aid, kind of came from Jim Jones. He takes all of his people down to Guyana. I have no idea how 900 people, like, yeah, let's go to Guyana with this guy. But 900 people plus go with him to Guyana. The, our government goes and sends out a team to interview him. That day he kills some of our government officials and he makes all the people drink the Kool-Aid. They find that there's 900 people dead. I don't know if you know that story or read that story. No one's like, you know what? Jim Jones is a pretty good teacher, right? Like, no, like, he made some crazy big claims. He's like, if you need to be your friend, I'll be your friend. If you need to be your God, I'll be your God. I'll be whatever you need me to be. Like, he made some crazy claims. People end up following it. It led to their death, but no one's like, you know what? That Jim Jones guy is still kind of a good guy, right? Like, you, know, you can't do that. You can't talk about Jim Jones like, yeah, his teachings were okay, actually. Pretty good order, you know, good speaker. Has some authority. Like, you can't do that. He's tossed out by the claims he made and how his actions and his lifestyle just completely tossed out. So with Jesus, we have to l- l- make a decision. And, not, and again, C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, I'm trying, I love why he says this. It's a long quote. But he says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready, so they, I'm ready to accept him as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who who, uh, says he's a poached egg or else he'd be the devil of hell. (laughs) You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He, was not, he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. When you look at Jesus and you study his life, you go, okay, there really is only... We try to make there more options than this, but you say he's either crazy, he's out of his mind, and people follow crazy. Will they follow crazy? You either say, no, maybe he's just lying. He's just lying. He knows he's, but he's lying, or you say, maybe he's Lord. See, here's the point. There's a lot of different narratives about Jesus people still try to make today. I notice, like, for us, it might not be the same in 2018. It might just be like, here's a, a, a narrative thrown about Jesus, like a story we say about Jesus. Like, hey, Jesus doesn't really care. Jesus is really not with you. Jesus can't meet in your need. Jesus will not love you or serve you or help. Like, we try to throw out different narratives and stories about who Jesus is, and we try to, again, compartmentalize Jesus or make him fit our box the way we think. We try to make him manageable and controllable like his family did, like the scribes did, but Jesus won't allow this. Jesus in verse 23 is now going to show us who he is. So, number two, we're going to see Jesus' identity is made known. And he shares two parables, and I love, we're going to focus on the latter one. Uh, Verse 23, so Jesus called them to himself. He's like, all right, you think I'm the ruler of the demons? He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but has an end. And then he says, no one can enter a strongman's house and plunder his goods. Plunder uh, uh, his goods unless he first binds the strongman, and then he will plunder his house. All right, Jesus gives two parables. He goes, you think I'm casting out demons by the power of demons? You think I'm casting out Satan by the power of Satan? He goes, well, that's a civil war then happening. And if that's the case, this will not stand and this will not last. So why would Satan want to destroy his own kingdom? Because that's, that's not the case. He goes, I'm not going to, if I'm for him, we're going to eventually be done. Like, this is not going to last. The kingdom divided itself cannot stand. Abraham Lincoln takes that quote. right? like, Abraham Lincoln. But that's a good quote. It's like, you know, we have to have the same vision and move forward. Obviously, we're not on the same page here. Then in verse 27, and I love this parable. Again, verse 27, let me just read it. He says, no one can enter strongman's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strongman and then he'll plunder his house. What is this? What is he saying? What is he claiming? What is he trying to say here? Jesus likens this world to a strong man's house, to Satan's house, and it's interesting to me how Satan's described here in a sense as a strong man, that he likens this world to a house or a kingdom that Satan is taking control of, and Jesus goes, to take back this house, to take this house, we must first bind the strong man and plunder his goods from there. Jesus saying, Satan is a strong man, but I'm the stronger man. Satan has come to to kill, to steal, to destroy. He's come to bring injustice, pain, rape, murder. He's come and brought all these things, and he's ruling this house in this way. And here's what I came to do. I came to bind Satan and steal from him, to plunder, to take back what's rightfully mine. And what I love about this is we try to talk about Jesus as a great teacher, and he's a great teacher. We try to talk about Jesus as a great teacher of love. He is a great teacher of love, but he's so much more. Before Jesus tries to do something uh, in us, he has to do something for us. He's like, I need to bind Satan. I need to bind him. And I need to bring life and healing and justice. And I'm bringing the kingdom of God to earth because Satan is bound, because I'm here. And there's a side of this which I so love because wherever Jesus is going, you're seeing like glimpses of the kingdom. People are beginning to see they're being healed. They're they're being forgiven of sin. There's all these things happening. He's saying, do you see it's happening? Satan is being bound. I'm plundering his house. I'm taking back what's rightfully mine. You know, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity also wrote this, and I had to read it because it's just so... Timely. He says, I'm trying, or he says here, one of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament. Remember, C.S. Lewis was not a believer. He was a critic of script, uh, of literature. Like, that's where he got his doctorate in, is criticizing ancient literature. And so he says, uh, one of the things that surprised me when I first read the New Testament seriously was it talks so much about a dark power in the universe, a mighty evil spirit who is held to, to be the power behind death, disease, and sin. The difference is that Christianity thinks this dark power was created by God and was good when he c- was created and went wrong christianity agrees with dualism that this universe is at war but it does not think this is a war between independent powers it thinks it is a civil war a rebellion and that we are living in a part of the universe occupied by the rebel see he's going this is not just two opposing powers this is a civil war god created everything god created everything good something went bad and he goes god has come back to reclaim and take back his The whole idea is satan is that strong man who in a sense has ruled this world for so long, and Jesus is like, I have come to be the stronger man and to bind him. And I have come to take back which was rightfully mine. I have come to set people free. I have come to heal the sick. I have come to heal the blind. I have come to do all these things. I have bound the strong man. And Paul says it best to me in Colossians 1. In Colossians 1 verse 13, Paul says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed or transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Paul's like, Jesus has come and delivered us out of darkness and brought us into the son of his love. He's transferred us over. Satan has been beaten. Satan has lost. And I want to point something out really quick with this other verse in Galatians 2, verse 13. Listen to how he says it. And you who are dead in your trespasses and in uncir- uncircumcision of your flesh, God made it alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Next verse. This, is, this he set aside and nailing it to the cross. Listen to this. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and putting them to open shame by triumphing, umphying, I can't say it, triumphing over them in him. Here, here's the idea. Jesus is like, I made, Paul says, Jesus made a public spectacle of Satan and demons. Like he made a mockery out of them. He bound him. When Jesus used this language of the strong man binding another strong man, he's saying he made a mockery of Satan. He bound the one that seemed to be unstoppable. He, he literally disarmed him. He disarmed him. He bound him up so he could take back what was, what was rightfully his. See, Jesus came to take back what was right, rightfully his. And here's what I love about this. Because when you read the scriptures, and like, think about the Gospels. It's Jesus healing people, doing all these miracles, people are coming to know him. And then all of a sudden, what happens towards the end of Jesus' life? He gets betrayed he stands before Pilate. He's now being beaten and scourged. He's now being bound to the cross. And you think about in the disciples' minds, they go, oh no, the strong man's being bound. And in reality, Jesus appeared to be the strong man being bound, but by being bound, he in reality was binding the other strong man. You're like, what? Like by Jesus being bound on the cross, it looked like loss, it looked like defeat, but in reality, when he was being bound, it was Satan being bound in a much greater way. You know Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, there's this promise to Adam and Eve and, and there's these, to, and really even to the serpent, And in Genesis 3:15, it says it this way, it says, "God said, "I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel." Here, here's, here's what that is. This is called the proto-evangelium. This is, called the, this is the first mention of the gospel in all of the Bible. Like where's the gospel mentioned? It's mentioned in Genesis 3:15. God is saying, "Hey, snake, hey Satan? listen, you're going to bite, you're going to hurt the Son of God's heel, but in so doing, he's going to crush your head. And what appeared to the cross, what appeared to be lost, what appeared to be the, the strong man being bound, when in reality was Satan being bound. Like in reality, like yes, he was bruised momentarily, Jesus was bruised, but he crushed your head. And there's this idea that the strong man has been bound, that Jesus has what, it looked like defeat, but in reality it was, it was a victory for Jesus. See, who is Jesus? Jesus is trying to say, who is Jesus? He says, I am the stronger man who has come to, bound, to bind the strong man. I've come to bound him. He looks like he won. This might be his world right now, but I've come to bound him. And I've come to set us free. And I'm so thankful because if you're in addiction or if you're in trouble, if there's anything you're like bound to, Jesus is like, that's why I came. I came to bind Satan and set you free from that, that you don't always have to lose, that you have victory in me. And Jesus is saying, this is my true identity. This is who I am. I am the stronger man. I am the stronger man who binds the strong man. Aren't, we, aren't you so thankful? I'm so thankful Jesus is the stronger man who came to bound Satan. That he came to make a public spectacle of Satan to say, no, he's bound. He does not win. He does not have the last word. But Jesus then clarifies and says, don't you for a second take what I've done and attribute this work to demons. And he gives them a warning. And this is what we call the third point. I'm saying Jesus' identity is blasphemed. And let's like focus on this. Verse Verse 28. Jesus writes, Assuredly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they may utter, but he who has blasphemed against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is subject to eternal condemnation, because they said he has an unclean spirit. There's a few places to begin with this. This is a verse that has really rocked a lot of people, and they go, What is the impartible sin? Have I committed it? Have I done it? How do I know? How do I not know? What does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? What does that look like? I do want to first like point out this is not something I want to try to dismiss or pass over. This is a very sobering comment. That Jesus does say there is a sin that is not going to be forgiven. And that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And so before I try to explain this, let me just say like this is something that we should all kind of come to grips with and, and be sober-minded with. That the Holy Spirit is at work and a moving through Jesus, and through his ministry, and through the church, and, and there's something about blaspheming the spirit of God, goes. that's not something I'm going to forgive. And I'm like, What is that? So let's talk about that. Let's look at that for just a second. Um, so who is the Holy Spirit? What does he do? If you would write down John 16 verse 8, because in John 16 verse 8, it, it does say that the Holy Spirit will come to convict the world of sin, and of righteousness, and of judgment, of sin, because they don't believe in Jesus. The Holy Spirit right now, I so believe, is at work in our lives, in the world, saying, listen, there's sin in your life, and the sin in your life is that you don't believe in Jesus that you know you're created for Jesus and by Jesus. He's not convicting people of like, stop smoking. He's, he's convicting people of you need to know Jesus. He's convicting the world of sin, of sin they don't believe in Jesus. And the Holy Spirit's at move and at work. And I believe he's, he's constantly at move and constantly at work. And there are people who will deny that, deny that, deny that, and deny that. And even with Jesus specifically, let's look at the context of Jesus. They're now saying, no, 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 this isn't a work of God. This is a work of Satan. And Jesus goes, don't do that. Don't attribute my work to work of Satan. Don't blaspheme against the Holy Spirit's work. Don't say that this is a, a, a work of demons. Say that this is a work of the Spirit. And I do believe. He, let me kind of put it in this like context or this example um, for you, conspiracy theorists. Right? If you if you go to the doctor and you're convinced this doctor is a murder, a murderer, and a cannibal, and you're convinced of that, it's going to change everything about your interaction with the doctor. You go to the doctor's office, he's be like, "So, uh, let's talk about cutting you open." You're like, "You would like to talk about cutting me open, wouldn't you?" He's like, "What?" You know. He's like, you see a scalpel, what's a scalpel for? He's like, I gotta, you know, cut you open He's like, yeah, you'd like that. Like, right, like, if you're convinced that he's a murderer and a cannibal, you're gonna kind of paint it, like, everything he says and does from that point on will just convince you more. That's kind of the point. Like, he could say anything and, and be nice and be genuine, but if you're convinced of it, you're gonna be like, oh my gosh, this guy's trying to find a way to eat me. Like, you're just gonna be convinced of it in your mind. And if you look at Jesus, it's the same thing. If you look at Jesus, everything he says and does, if you have that premise, if you have that beginning point of looking at Jesus in that way, everything he says and does at that point in time, you'll go, This is a work of Satan. <gasps> he said that, it's a work of Satan. Like everything from that point on will just kind of convince you more and more and more. And that's kind of what's happening to the Pharisees. Now, I want to make, or to the scribes, and I want to be very, very clear. Jesus does not say to them, You have done this. By the way, do you notice that? He doesn't say, You have blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say they have. It's possible they have, but he doesn't say, You have done this. Here's kind of a, a couple of thoughts I would just want to leave you with. If there's a fear in your life that you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, number one, it, it probably means you haven't. If there's some sort of conviction and repentance and you, you hear the Holy Spirit convicting you and repenting you, like calling you to like, hey, believe in Jesus, hey, repent of your sin, if you hear that and sense that and you repent of it, it, it probably shows you're not blaspheming the Holy Spirit. He's trying to bring you to Jesus. He's not trying to make it more difficult. Okay, so Jesus never says they did this. He says, be aware. But if you do... So like, when does this take place? And I, I know there's different arguments on both sides. I would also read Matthew chapter 12. Jesus kind of gives more clarity to this because he acts like you can do this while you're still alive. He acts like this, He says, you'll not be forgiven in this age or the age to come. So there's, and it doesn't seem to be that you've only committed this only upon death, which I used to be taught a lot. It seems that this can happen in people's lifetime and I don't know when it happens, obviously. I'm not God. But I would say if there's some sort of conviction and brokenness in your life, it probably means you haven't. And I'd say, think about this, the Holy Spirit is convicting you, saying, believe in Jesus, turn to Jesus, run to Jesus. And the moment you do, you've, you've heeded the Holy Spirit, you've listened to the Holy Spirit, you've surrendered to the Holy Spirit, so don't think you've blasphemed at that point in time. And I'll say this, if you hear Jesus, if you hear the Holy, if there's something in you saying, hey, there's sin in your life and you need to repent of it, let me say this, don't say now. Don't say later. Don't assume you'll have tomorrow to repent of your sin. So, so don't put this off is what I'm saying. If you, if you hear God's Spirit saying, hey, right now there's some major sins in your life that are unconfessed and everyone thinks you're a Christian, or whatever. And you're like, well, I'll just put this off until you know, my deathbed. Like, do not do that. Don't, don't deny the work of the Holy Spirit right now in your life. Don't push that off. I'd say be sensitive to the Spirit and what he's saying to you. Because by no means do I want to dismiss this and lead someone also astray the wrong way. I do believe the Spirit does move and work to, convince, to bring us to a place of just saying, Jesus, I need you. Next, I, I do want to look at again and here's a thought that is really encouraging to me, actually. Um, a guy named H.A. Ironside, who, who wrote about this, he said this, it was really, really good. He says, these words, listen, these words were never intended to torment anxious souls honestly desiring to know Christ. But they stand out as a blazing beacon warning of the danger of persisting in the rejection of the Spirit's testimony of Christ until the seared conscience no longer responds to the gospel message. They're never intended to torment someone. One of the hardest things I've had to do, honestly, being in ministry and talking to people is talking to people who are convinced they've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. That has been some of the most long and exhaustive conversations I've ever had. People who say, oh no, I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I'm, I'm a walking damnation. I'm going to hell and I cannot repent. And I, and I try to show people in scriptures, there's no one who ever goes to God or goes to Jesus repenting. He's like, no, no, no. You want to repent? Sorry, you can't. That does not happen. You don't, you don't see that. I love what Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 37, just so you can hear it and see it. Jesus said, "Assuredly," or he says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So if you go to Jesus in brokenness and repentance, he's not going to be like, ah, sorry, you're the one, you are that one now. He says, I'll do by no means, John 6, 37, I'll by no means cast you out. That is what my Jesus says. In 1 Timothy 2, 4, it talks about how God desires all to know him and to come to the knowledge of truth. Our God's desires that all would know him, that all would be saved, and to come to the knowledge of truth. That's what our God says. He's not like trying to make it hard for someone to repent. He's not trying to say, oh, you want to repent, you can't. He doesn't he by no means will cast out. And can I just point this out too, by the way? Can we just focus on the beauty of verse 28? You know, I don't know if we ever like, stop and read the first part of this. In verse 28, how does Jesus even begin this? He says, Assuredly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the sons of men. Isn't that beautiful? He goes, Accept this. And we always focus on that, except this. We're like, Whoa! It freaks us out. But Jesus came to save. Jesus came to redeem. Jesus, is like, I want to save. I'm not trying to make this hard for you to believe. And if you do sense the Spirit of God speaking to you or talking to you, saying, Believe in Jesus, surrender, give up this old lifestyle, what are you still doing? Don't push that off. That's all I'd say. Don't say, okay, well, one day I'll repent and believe. Just don't do that. If you sense the Spirit of God convicting you, go to Jesus. He'll by no means cast you out. Amen? He desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. I serve a God who wants to save people, who has come to save people. He desires all men to be saved, but do not not resist that conviction of the Spirit saying believe in Jesus. Do not resist that. That's my only warning. Do not resist that. Let's move to number four. All right, number four. Uh, Jesus' identity is shared. So after he says, don't do that, don't ascribe my works to Satan and the devil, don't do that, I love now how he shares his identity in verse 31. He says, or then it says, then his brothers and his mother came. I love that his mother's there, it just makes me laugh. It shows us the humanity of Jesus, like, hey, yeah, your mom's here. And standing outside, they sent to him calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, and saying, who is my mother or my brothers? And he looked around in a circle those who sat by him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. For ever it does, the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. And let me just say, this is not Jesus so much trying to reject his family. It's not so much that he's trying to reject his family. Like, what a heart, like, Jesus is so heartless towards his family. It's not. He's not trying to say, I'm rejecting my family. He, what he's saying is this. It's not DNA that binds us together. It's Blood that binds us together and you're part of my family because of my blood but because of my blood you can now be part of my family and he's, he's showing that there is a new identity that is shared that and think about this culture everything was built upon your family's identity I mean you lived with your parents even after you got married most of the time you take up your father's trade or, or craft or job skill. Like, you, everything revolves around family. People didn't move away. Like, it's weird. We're Americans. We have this mindset of like, oh, you're 18? Like, go move 5,000 miles away. Like, we have this weird mindset. Like Okay, I'll talk to my brother and sister in like, mm, five years. Like, we're just different. I wish we cared more about family. I wish we fought for that more. But th- we don't build our identity on, upon family like they did. That seems more Eastern. I wish we would in some ways. We build our identity, though, upon our career. We build our identity upon our LinkedIn community and network. We build our identity on how much money we have in the bank account or retirement. We build our identity on other things. They build their identity upon family. And Jesus is saying, I know, that this, my, I know my family is out there, but my true family is so much more than just DNA. It's blood. My true family are my brothers and sisters who hear the word of God and do it. And I, I do want to focus on this, because what is your identity based upon? For some, it can be based upon your family. It can be based upon your last name. For some, it is based upon career or relationships or the next thing. But where do you find your sense of identity? Jesus says, find your sense of identity just with me. With me. Hearing my word, hearing God's word, and doing it, and living it. That's my family. And I'll say this, again, for the church, you guys, this should be, in some ways, that family. And I'll, I want to be the first to say this. I have a brother and sister, right? And things are not perfect. And we fight. And we love each other. If someone speaks bad about my brother, it's like, that's, I can do that, but you can't. Right? Like, there's something about that. Like, oh, my brother's such a jerk. Like, yeah, your brother is a jerk. Like, hey, don't say that. you like, you just said it. No, you can't. Right? There's something about, like, family in that way. That is the church. Like, yes, there will be issues. Just like there's issues in real families. There will be differences. There'll be frustrations. But at the end of the day, you say, we're bound by the blood of Jesus. At the end of the day, you say, we have something so much more in common than anything else that might separate us, that you're my brother or sister in Christ, that we are part of the family of God, and that's such a beautiful thing because I love how Psalm 27 says it. It says, even though my father and mother forsake me, God will not forsake me. Even though my family might forsake me, my family might turn their back on me, I have a God who will not forsake me. I have a God who will not turn his back on me. The church might even, people might, but God will not forsake me. That is that is something to say, that is your your true family that is your identity, and that is so precious to me, because I am three thousand miles away from our family, and in many ways, my wife and I when we got married, it's like we le- we left and Cleave, like we leave we left leave in Cleave, like it says in the Bible, we cling to each other, We're like okay, just me and you in Florida, we had Micah, and I was like now there's three of us, but to be honest, like this is our family, like this these are my brothers and sisters in Christ, like this is our family, and what we have here is so special, I can't explain it. It's something where I go, I know you love Jesus, I love Jesus, we can share that in common, it's a beautiful thing. Well, we mess up, well, we script, of course, because all families do. <laughs> but there's something that binds us so much stronger and I love this again because, let me just read this last verse to you. I just want to end with this thought because again, sometimes we, we feel left out, we feel forsaken. Isaiah 49 verse 15 and 16. He writes, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb, even these may forget. God says, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. First of all, he's like, can a mom really forget about a nursing kid? Like, if my wife forgot about Micah when he was like a baby nursing, I'd be like, oh, something's wrong with my wife. Like, that freaked me out. But Jesus, is like, but God, who's speaking, is like, even if they forget, I won't forget. I've inscribed you in the palms of my hands. And that, that just speaks of d- deep intimacy and love. Like, you're inscribed on my hands. Your name is written on my hand. Like you're, look at my hands. By looking at my hands, you can know your mind. Is that not what Jesus would say? Hey, by looking at my hands, you can know your mind. You're inscribed on my hands with two nails. I've inscribed you on my hands. You're mine. You are completely mine. Jesus says, "He who hears the word of God and does it, that's my family." And there really is something to this. I don't want to just like make this like a. You need to hear that and celebrate that. But there's a side of it. Like now, let's do it. <laughs> Now let's do the will of God, let's seek the will of God, let's seek to live out the will of God, because he goes, that's my family. Not just those who hear, not just those who say, but those who hear the word of God and do it, that's my family, that's my brother, that's my mother, that's my sisters, that's my family. And we are bound, we are bound by the blood of Jesus, not by DNA. We are bound by something so much greater. He's like, you're written on the palms of my hands, you're mine. Listen, Jesus shares his identity. Jesus' identity was so confused. It was blasphemed. It was mocked. He goes, I'm the stronger man. Don't blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Don't attribute my work to 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 Satan. Don't do that. If you hear the Spirit speaking to you, repent, believe. By no means will I cast you out. And know this, not even just that, but you can now be part of my family. You can now be my brother and my sister. And I'd say this, guys, be, be part of the family of God. There's nothing like it. If you're not a part of the family, if you do not believe in Jesus, John 1, 12, as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to be called sons of God. As many as believed Jesus, he says, you're my son. So do you believe Jesus? Do you want to be part of that family? It's by Jesus. Because he inscribed something on his hands. We can now be part of his family. Amen? Listen, here's what I want to do. I'm going to pray. I'm going to talk a little bit about community groups. My wife's going to join me. We're going to share something with you guys, like a new update. And then, um, well, you guys, we're not going to end with worship. We just want to end with some more time to actually hang out and be a family. Cool? Can we do that? Let's pray. Father, we just want to thank you for this time and to slow down and be reminded of your son's identity. That Jesus, you are the stronger man and you have bound Satan. And God, just let that truth excite us. Let it free us. Let us believe it that Jesus, those old things, those old ways, they are bound. That God, you are the stronger man, that you have come to set captives free. That Jesus, you are bound and taken to a cross so I could be free. So Lord, for everyone in this room to speak and move and be in this place, make us more of a family, make us more like you, Jesus, in your wonderful name. Amen.